If you are able and would like to stand with me, uh, please stand as we give attention to the inerrant, the infallible uh, word of God. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that it works are e that its works are evil. But you go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time is not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Please be seated. There is something about getting older uh, that can at times lead to what has become, become commonly known uh, as a midlife crisis. It is a time in our life where people begin to feel the frailty, the limitations of the flesh. And so they reach for a time when they felt younger. They felt more vibrant, more sure of themselves. In one sense, it's a longing for better days, while at the same time losing touch with the truth that they have learned growing up. And there's, you think about many, uh, usually I've heard the statement that if you see an older man driving around in a sports car, that's his midlife crisis, right? It's trying to reclaim those glories of youth in some way, shape, or form. I think that in some ways, the American church is experiencing a midlife crisis. We've lost a sense of who we are and who we're meant to be. We've lost our identity and given it over to many other things. We have become fearful and restrained in our proclamation of the gospel. We have lost the fullness of what it means to be the body of Christ. Uh, we have given way to consumer Christianity where if we become unhappy with our current purchase, we can easily turn it in for another one. We have allowed wickedness to live in the church unchecked. I, I don't often recommend um, things to watch. I am going to recommend something this morning, something uh, Luann and I watched probably almost a year ago now. Uh, but it has recently come up on Netflix. It's something called The American Gospel. I highly recommend and encourage that to you. I think it, it really uh, presents in a, a, clear and, a clear way what I'm talking about here. Uh, if you have Netflix and you, you're looking for something to watch, it's a, it's a documentary uh, really on, on Christianity in America called The American Gospel. 
But we really need to begin to ask ourselves, I think, how are we to understand who we are supposed to be as Christians? And if we're going to know who we're supposed to be as Christians, there's only one reliable source that we can look to, and that is the example of Jesus. Knowing that he experienced all that we experienced, yet he did it without sin. He is the perfect model for the Christian life. And here we see in, in John chapter 7 a great example of Jesus for us. Now the Gospel of John uh, doesn't try to be linear uh, in its telling of the story of Jesus, right? Uh, many of the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke particularly, while they may have skips, tend to be a linear historical telling of the gospel, uh, of Jesus' life. Uh, gospel, or the Gospel of John is much more with thematic sections. So we, what we see here, when, when it says, after this, Jesus went, it's really about six months later. We know this because the um, feeding of the 5,000 happened at Passover, uh, but we're now at the Feast of Booths, which would have been about uh, six months later. Uh, in our in our time frame in Israel now and just for the for the sake of this morning you may be wondering well what is the feast of booths uh, in Israel there were three major feasts at which Jewish people were to gather uh, two of those we commonly at least know in, in some form or fashion Passover and Pentecost right and Passover was uh, the feast of unleavened bread it happened in the spring. We uh, now think of it as Easter time. Uh, it remembered the exodus from Israel or Israel's exodus from the Egypt. Seven weeks after Passover, you would have Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. Um, interestingly enough, in God's sovereignty, that falls today. Today would be the Feast of Weeks, uh, the Feast or, or Pentecost. It, this is the seventh Sunday uh, after Easter, and even in the Old Testament. When they celebrated the Feast of Weeks, they did it on a Sunday. So even if you consider that uh, their Passover was on Saturday, it's, today is the Jewish Feast of Weeks. I'm sure there are uh, Jews everywhere today who are celebrating uh, the Feast of Weeks. It was an offering of the first fruits of the summer wheat harvest. The third was the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles. Um, this was really, probably of the three, was the most popular of the feasts for Israel, because it marked the end of the harvest season. Your work for the harvest season was done. It was a rest for an agricultural people. And what they did is they literally went outside and they made these booths or kind of like tents uh, out of what a, a type of palm frond. And they slept outside. It was a nationwide camp out. It's really what it was. They camped out and they remembered uh, kind of these were supposed to be representative of their dwelling uh, inhabitants in the, in the wilderness, what they lived in in the wilderness. And so when we come to chapter 7, we find that we're, during this time in Israel, uh, that they were celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And as we come here, we see Jesus' brothers trying to get him to come with them and publicly declare himself. So as we come to our text this morning, we're going to see three things. First, we're going to see earthly glory. Second, we're going to see heavenly priority. And finally, we're going to see worldly reply. Earthly glory, heavenly priority, and worldly reply. 
I tried really hard to find a Y ending that ended in more of an E and not a I sound, but I couldn't. So it doesn't sound as quite alliterative as it can, but oh well. Now let's begin by looking at earthly glory. Uh, in Acts 1.14, we see that many of Jesus' brothers were some of the first Christians who came to faith. But here in the Gospels and throughout the Gospels, uh, we see that his brothers had not yet come to faith. Uh, they'd spent their whole lives with Jesus, yet they didn't believe. In some ways, and you know, I think it's not terribly wrong for us at times to imagine what it would have been like to be the brothers of Jesus. Can you imagine? Why can't you be more like Jesus? <laughs> right? Like, uh, you, you think about growing up in a family and Jesus is never in trouble and Jesus never does anything wrong. Uh, it's very much so, I'm sure if you ever watched the Brady Bunch where it was Marsha, 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 it was probably Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's always about Jesus, right? And there was this animosity towards his brothers. And I don't know if that's true or not, but you could imagine how difficult it would have been to grow up as the brothers of Jesus. Uh, we see their unbelief both uh, directly stated here, as we see in verse 5, for not even his brothers believed him. But we also see it in their advice uh, to Jesus. Uh, even, if they, even if they didn't have that much of a contentious relationship, they didn't understand who Jesus actually was and for what purpose he came for. Because in essence, they say to him, hey, if you're going to do this publicly, let's do it right. Let's go into Jerusalem. Your disciples will be there. You can, you can bring all the glory to yourself. In essence, if you're going to be a religious leader, you should be the most popular, the most famous of religious leaders. Obviously, they'd seen that Jesus had a gathering of people, right? People would follow him around. Maybe they even, and we don't know, we know at the very least, I, I think, I don't want to misspeak. I'm sure they possibly saw some of his miracles even. But the reality is, is that the, his brothers wanted what the crowds wanted. The crowds from the feeding of the 5,000. They wanted Jesus who would come and display an earthly glory. It's the same temptation that Satan made of Jesus in the wilderness. That Jesus would use his divine powers for self-serving ends without any thought or obedience to God. I think on the surface level, just to make some applications, there's a comfort here for us even as we deal with our own families who may be unbelievers, isn't there? That even Jesus' own brothers didn't believe that he was the Son of God. They didn't follow after him, not at first. Before Jesus' death, it seemed like only Mary was, of his family was a follower of Jesus, and it's most likely that Joseph is dead at this point, I think. Um, he's not mentioned much after the... We don't, and somewhere in that 32 years of Jesus, it's assumed uh, that Joseph has passed on. But even in the face of an unbelieving family, he bore uh, his burden to faithfully serve the Lord. And we're called to do the same. Even in the face of family and friends who don't agree with what we're doing. But we see here the call towards personal popularity. And there are many who will come and try to use the church for their own personal glory. Again, I, I commend to you the American gospel that really talks about uh, these telemarketers, telemarketers, televangelists, they're not much different, um, in my opinion, who use the gospel as a platform for their own personal money and glory. 
they twist and turn what Jesus says in order to make themselves as rich and as powerful as possible. They set themselves up in ways as the head of the church. They make the things of God an avenue to glorify themselves. We must flee anything that resembles this. We must flee anything that makes the gospel about a people or a person, unless that person is Jesus Christ. It's not about our own glory. It's not about the glory of another individual. It's about humbling ourselves before God, coming before him in obedience, understanding that even Jesus, the son of God, did not use his power in a self-serving manner. He didn't. He humbled himself before God, becoming a servant. He always used his authority and power in a way that was to the glory and service of God. In service to his will and his will alone. So if Jesus didn't come for a heavenly glory, what did he come for? This leads us to our second point, a heavenly priority. The response of Jesus to his brother was very pointed. Uh, in much the same way he answers his mother at the, the wedding feast in Canaan, he says, my time has not yet come. Jesus knew that there was a time that was coming where he would need to publicly put himself out there in Jerusalem. It's interesting, any time that Jesus goes to Jerusalem, it's around the time of a feast. In fact, we can mark Jesus' years of ministry by particularly the Passovers. I think there's three Passovers that he goes to over the course of his three-year ministry. The third, of course, being uh, the one where he would ultimately go to the cross. But Jesus understood something uh, about his timing. His time had not yet come. What did Jesus mean by this? Well, Jesus understood that his life followed a definite pattern and timing uh, yes, his brothers wanted him to create his own public glory, but Jesus knew that before his glory, there first had to come the humiliation of the cross. Jesus would make himself known at Passover. And interestingly here, we have to understand that Passover always has to come before Pentecost. Passover over, always comes before Pentecost. What do I mean by that? Passover was a, a, a remembrance of the blood sacrifice sparing Israel. And Pentecost was this feast that celebrated the harvest. You think about the first Pentecost that we, or the first uh, Pentecost in Acts, and what, is, what happened there? There was a harvest brought into the church of 3,000 souls, but Passover has to come before Pentecost, the blood of the Passover, Passover had to be fulfilled before the harvest of Pentecost could be reaped. But the problem is, is that his brothers wanted him to wear a crown without first going to the cross. Augustine says it this way. They were giving him counsel to pursue glory as advising in a worldly manner and with earth, earthly disposition. And Jesus' response was simply to send his family on without him. He says, you go on, I'm not going to go with you. It wasn't that Jesus wasn't going to go at all. 
He just, but he didn't want to go in the manner that they wanted him to go. And we know that Jesus is going to go because this was part of what you had to do as a Jewish person. He was perfectly obedient to the law. But he was unwilling to go in pursuit of his own glory because he understood that there was a heavenly priority that he had to follow. We, like Jesus, must be fulfilling our duties, the things that he has called us to. Now, the reality is that even as I say that, you might go, well, Jesus knew his timing. I don't always know my own timing. And that's true. We don't have all the same knowledge that Jesus has, but we still have the word of God, and the word of God has told, told, taught us excuse me, how we're to live and who we are to be as children of God. Yes, we should be prudent in our actions. When Jesus knew his time had yet, not yet come and he knew that the, the leaders in Jerusalem were seeking to kill him, then he didn't go and proclaim himself pub publicly. But prudence does not mean that we never put ourselves in danger. Sometimes we take a difficult stand for the gospel. Sometimes it'll cost us safety and security. We must not fear when we are called to take a stand. I, I actually believe that this is something that the church is having to contend with through this coronavirus. Will we take a stand in the gospel? And I'm thankful that in many ways we're not having to deal with in Alabama how some, some states are having to deal with this. You think of Michigan where again and again the, the governor of Michigan is, is keeping the church from meeting. How will the church respond? I, I've been thinking a lot lately about how we have to change what we've been doing. I think, and again, I don't pretend to know the will of God. I think that there may be a way in which coronavirus is shaking us from our lethargy. How much of, of what we do in the church has become about programs and events? So much of our, our evangelism in the church throughout America has focused itself on, well, if we're going to do evangelism, we have to have a good youth program. If we're going to do evangelism, we have to have a good whatever, fill-in-the-blank program. Or we focus simply our evangelism on, on the big events each year. Let's, we got, we got to get ramped up. It's Christmas time. Let's have a good choir singing and let's have a good program. There's going to be people here. We ramp it up at Easter time. Oh, we're going to have Easter egg hunts, and that's going to get people here, and we think that we're doing evangelism. But so much more of what we need to do is beyond that. Are we actively going and actively seeking people to tell about Jesus, or are we living in fear of how that might make us look or how, that might, how we might respond to that? How will we, we, we even talk about worship, I think, in this time. And how are we going to respond if... if a precedent is being set here that continues and continues and continues, and I'm not saying it will, but what if it does? Will we come and worship in spite of being told not to, even though it might mean something will happen to us? Yes, we should be prudent, but we have to stop living in fear. 
And we, like Jesus, must seek his glory. We must know that the time is short and the harvest is great. Therefore, we devote ourselves to the preaching and teaching of the gospel, living holy lives before the world, sharing the good news of salvation. As we consider the Bible, I love the Bible. I love the whole of the Bible because the Bible is this wonderful story. Like if you, if you consider the cross and Pentecost, the, the, when the Holy Spirit comes, do you realize that for hundreds of years, Israel was rehearsing that? You look at the Old Testament and what were they rehearsing? Sacrifice, redemption, harvest. You miss that if you lose the Old Testament, right? It's the cycle and pattern each and every year they were getting ready for Jesus. Yeah, they missed it. A lot of them missed it. But Jesus did not come for his own glory. He didn't come to bring glory to his family. He didn't come to be the conquering his hero Israel wanted. He came to fulfill all that God had set before him to do. We must come before God. Understanding that like Christ, we have been given a work. We are to make disciples of the nations. The church has fallen into a routine that looks a lot like a prescribed formula. But we must wake from our lethargy. We must realize that we must be active in the task. The glory of God is not an abstract thought. It is not simply a theological concept to be grasped. It is something that we must be daily, actively pursuing. We cannot allow ourselves to fall into the habits the world. The reality is, is that the world is always going to respond to Jesus. This is our third and final, final point, the worldly reply. I think we would be hard-pressed, and I won't make an absolute statement here because I'm sure if I do, someone will find some way to prove me wrong. But I believe we would be hard-pressed to find anyone who is indifferent to Jesus. Everybody has an opinion about Jesus. This is no less true in our text. When, when we see Jesus finally get to Jerusalem, remembering that as he comes, he does so in a, in a quiet and, and, and way so that people don't know that he's there. We see that people are eager and excited to find him, and for different reasons. The crowds were excited. They were excited for all that he brought with him, his miracles, his teaching. The religious leaders were excited. They wanted to kill him. Right? They wanted to find him. In verse 12, it says, And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, No, he's leading the people astray. Everybody had an opinion. Always opinions and attitudes about Jesus, but few people move from knowing to believing. Jesus didn't come and he didn't try to set himself up as a modern day evangelist in Jerusalem. He didn't seek popularity. Understanding that 
Simple popularity doesn't make you right. But he came and the people responded. The worst of the responses, as we've seen, is the religious leaders who wanted to kill him. They considered him a threat. We see this in verse 7 as Jesus is talking to his brothers. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it and that its works are evil. You know why they hated Jesus? He told them they were wrong. You are living wrongly. You are living contrary to the word of God. It's similar to what he says earlier in chapter 3. And this is judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. One commentator by the name of William Barclay says it this way. When a man's ideals clash with those of Christ, either he must submit or he must seek to destroy him. And this is why so many people devote so much of their time to attacking Jesus and his followers. The world hates the cross of Christ because the cross of Christ calls them a sinner in need of something to save them. And so books are written about how Christianity is untrue. Go read anything by Richard Dawkins and he'll tell you how ignorant and untrue religion is. But Christians, we are called to live holy lives. And if we live holy lives, it will expose the evil of this world. John 15, 19, it says this, If you are of the world, the world will love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Does the world hate you? We must remember that what matters most is not the opinion of the world. Some will call Jesus a good man, maybe a good teacher. Others will call him a deceiver and say he's leading people astray. But the question is, how will we respond? How will you respond? Jesus may be hidden from the world, but he is proclaimed through his gospel Do you believe that you are living in an evil age? Do you believe there are people around you who are bound to this evil age? Yet could you also say of you that you are hesitant to openly speak of the things of Christ? To speak of the cross? We need to be bold in the face of this world. What do they say? What's the, I may botch this, but what is the, the saying? Opinions are like noses. Everybody has one. It's no less true of opinions about Jesus. I don't know that there's anyone, like I said, who's truly indifferent. Some may be hostile. Some may rebuke his claims. Some may dabble with him and hope that they can get something out of it. But we must come and understand who Jesus is. We must be reminded every day that he is the only son of God, that he is the only savior of mankind, that there is no other hope to be found in this world except 
in him. The world is hostile to Jesus, and this means they'll be hostile towards us as well. But we should not allow this to shake us. We should not allow it to, to make us remain silent. Instead, we must come and stand firm on the truth of the gospel, proclaiming that truth, giving glory to God each and every day. There are always going to be those who seek earthly glory. We must be on the watch for that. We must avoid that at all cost. We must not give any glory but to God alone. We must rest and trust in the goodness of his sovereignty and plan. We must focus on his working, that he has called us to, to a particular task at a particular point in time, just as he called Jesus. And that task is to tell others, to stand firm in the truth of the gospel. And we must remember that while everyone may have a response to Jesus, we must respond in faith and obedience, surrendering ourselves to his goodness and love, trusting in his plan. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I hope that through this season of uncertainty and unrest, that we would be shaken to our core, that we would be moved from any lethargy that we may have, to the unashamed, unabashed proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reality is this, that while you may live in the South, in Alabama, in Pell City, Alabama, and you may assume that everyone around you is Christian, they're not. They're not. They need Jesus. And here's what I know to be a fact. God has called you to tell them. Blessed are the hands and feet of those who bring the good news. Are your hands and feet blessed? Would we be a people who without shame proclaim Jesus? Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for the example of Jesus. Lord, would we proclaim each and every day and seek the glory of God in all things. We ask and pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Please stand as you're able. As